I love the way that Elder Tony and Pat really love on those grandkids. Every time you see them, they've got a grandkid in their arms. So I mean, he really, he really uh, means what he says about kids. So uh, it's an honor to be back here uh, to this pulpit. Uh, as I always say, when, when Elder Doug's preaching, that means you've reached the bottom of the barrel. Nobody else is available. <laughs> so, so, uh, thank you. Uh, and as Pastor Mark, I told Pastor Mark yesterday, I uh, hated to miss church uh, last Sunday, and I was stuck at O'Hare. We had a, a 11:46 flight, and I always like to cut it very close. I'm, I'm one of those guys that like to run through the airport, you know. So, so <laughs> you don't have to be that honest about it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I get there at 11, 11. As soon as I get to the gate, they announced, uh, because of that monsoon that you all had here uh, last Sunday morning, uh, our flight would be knocked out until not 2, not 3, not 4, 5 o'clock, six hours later. So I, I just pulled out my laptop. And so what you're going to get today is you get, a, you get a Sunday morning special for a sermon. Because I knocked it out at O'Hare Airport last Sunday morning. All right? And uh, we're just going to cover James 1 and 2. That's all right. Because if I had six more hours, then I would have covered the whole, the whole book of James. And uh, it's a good thing uh, Pastor Mark, he's breathing a sigh of relief right now. Because you guys know I like to preach through an entire book in the same sitting. I don't like you to miss anything. And uh, this is actually only the second New Testament book that, I, that I'm going to be preaching through. The only other New Testament book that I've preached through is Mark. And so I'm a big Old Testament guy. I believe that you, you can preach Jesus just from Genesis through Malachi. Not that Ma Matthew and Revelation aren't important, but I believe you can preach Jesus through from uh, Genesis through Malachi, nothing more, because that's what Jesus used. So anyways, uh, as an aside, why, why are we studying James at all? Uh, first, I think it's one of the most practical books in all of Scripture, okay? Uh, we study James to examine the relationship between our faith and works, okay? James refers to faith, to faith 14 different times in this letter. And it is a letter of warning, even though we're not going to go through the, 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 the vantage point of warning. And uh, there are only 108 verses in this letter, half of them. 59 verses out of the 108 are commands, okay? Obedience is everywhere. And his theme is simple. Genuine faith acts, genuine faith works. And he pounds on that theme over and over again. And the second reason uh, we study James are the practical aspects. They talk about the practical aspects on our faith here in the city of Chicago and in our world. There are themes like, you know, dealing with stress and temptation, okay? Uh, ethics, war and peace. He even talks about social media. Believe it or not, I'll get to the social media portion of it, okay, and so on. 
but we're just going to cover the first two chapters, so uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, you are the source of all good and perfect gifts, because you are the Father of lights, from whom all good and perfect gifts come, and in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, because you are good and you're perfect and you are holy. So I humbly pray that you would open your word to us, the people of God. May your Holy Spirit open our spiritual eyes, open our spiritual ears to hear, not only to hear, but to obey and do what your word says. For it's in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So who, who is this guy, James? Well, he's likely uh, the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus, same family, grew up for years. He worked with him in the carpenter's shop, and he played with him in the dusty streets of Nazareth. And a few of us in here have been to Nazareth, and it is dusty. And they played in the streets together. But James did not believe in Jesus. His whole family didn't believe in him as the Messiah, the Son of God, until he was raised from the dead, actually. And it was James who, along with Peter, became the co-leaders of the Jerusalem church, that all-important church, and they convened the all-significant, all-important Jerusalem council that you read about in Acts 15 that came out with those significant decisions that would allow non-Jews to be grafted into this, Jew, into this uh, uh, Christian faith. And in Galatians 2.9, Paul called James a pillar of the faith. So open up your Bibles with me. If the verses are not up in the screen, uh, open up uh, the epistle of James. It is a letter, like I said, like many epistles uh, in the uh, New Testament. It is a letter of warning. But in, in James... Chapter 1, he, he introduces himself, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Greetings. So from verse 1 of chapter 1, we see that James is he's writing to the twelve tribes. He's writing to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And he writes, he refers himself, he refers to himself as a servant, a bond slave, doulos, the Greek word. He regards himself as a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been bought with a price. You all know I don't like to get through a sermon without a quote from C.S. Lewis, so here it goes. This is the only C.S. Lewis quote, all right? C.S. Lewis said that a humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That would be James. He simply refers to himself as a bondservant, doulos. He was writing to these 12 tribes in the dispersion. The Jews were stressed. They were scattered. That's the word dispersion. Throughout the Roman world, following the death of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr who was stoned to death in Acts 8, 1 to 3. Well, these Jews were experiencing tremendous persecution, tremendous poverty at the time. These early Christians were driven by their homes, 
from their homes. The women were struggling to hold their families together. They had to adjust to these new surroundings. Men lost their jobs because of their faith and their sense of dignity as a result. Kids were trying to get fit in to this new culture. James, was, he wrote to these Christians under persecution in order to teach them how to deal with stress and the pressures of difficult trials. And he goes on to say, and I'm reading verses 2 to 3, count it all joy. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Verse 4, let patience, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when James says to consider it a great joy, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. It is an imperative. It's a verb that addresses how we think, which is extremely important. This is not about a feeling, okay? Trials don't bring a smile to anybody's face. Not anybody that I know. This is not about putting on that happy face and just pretending everything is okay. Brother Jason Blackwell, who's not here, I was expecting him to be here. Uh, Pastor Mark and I were uh, in the nursing home, visited with him and his brother yesterday, and I uh, got an email. Of course, we all got the email from Pastor Mark that uh, Jason uh, was, uh, you know, rushed into the ER at UIC Hospital last weekend. Kidney, kidney infection, his blood pressure shooting through the roof. I guarantee you, this verse was not going through his mind, okay? Counting it all joy. He was not counting it all joy. He was extremely confused about what was happening. He could have thought he was having a second stroke or something. So this is not about that. Because when life comes crashing down on us like that, James does not intend for us to just say flippantly to one another, Oh, count, consider it all joy, brother or sister. So don't say that at the next funeral. Don't say that, you know, in too many hospital rooms. And we have, even though James uh, didn't really believe in who Jesus was, he certainly echoes many of Jesus' words and the situations in Jesus' life and ministry. In John 11, when Mary and Martha approached Jesus after their brother Lazarus had died, Jesus did not immediately start telling them, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Even though Jesus knew that God did have a purpose, he didn't just blurt it out. Instead, what did he do? In John 11, we read that he comforted Mary and Martha. And the two shortest words, he wept. John 11:35. trials will come in all shapes and sizes. And they're certainly not joyful in and of the, themselves. But they're joyful when we realize that they are under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes through those trials. And what is God accomplishing through the trials in our lives? 
I'm, I'm glad that you asked. And James would be glad to answer you. At least four purposes are listed in verses 3 to 12, which I will read now. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking no nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable, in all of his ways, let the, brother, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Verse 10, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The first purpose of trials in verse 4, 3 and 4, we learn to grow in Christ's likeness, and we become mature in him. First purpose. Second purpose, we learn to trust in his wisdom, we need a lot of wisdom, folks, when we walk through trials. This verse is another imperative, another command. He should ask God. This is what we are to do when we lack wisdom. But instead, we run to everything else. We run to everybody else except the one who we should be seeking. We should seek God for wisdom because, folks, we oftentimes lack uh, experience. That's knowing what to do. We often lack perspective. That's our vantage point, looking at things. And we lack knowledge. We often lack knowledge of all that's going on. Well, God has all that. He possesses all knowledge. He has an eternal perspective. He plays the long game. And in Christ... He has experienced every kind of test and has prevailed. And we can ask God because He gives to all generously and without criticizing. He gives wisdom liberally. Third, we learn to rely on His resources, not on our own wealth. That's verses 9 to 11. Whether we are poor or rich, trials have a way of leveling the playing field has a way of reminding us to trust in God and that money can't solve all of our problems and all of the stuff that you fill your life up with can't solve your hurts. Last purpose of trials. We learn to live for His reward. Verse 12, James uses the term blessed to describe the man who endures the trials. And that man or that woman who endures will receive the crown of life not an earthly crown with precious gems that we see, but the glorious reward of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 4.17, the Apostle Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Okay, another truth that comes out of this passage is God and his sovereignty will test the faith of his people and he'll do it for our good. Okay, this truth can be found in Romans 8.28. Not all things automatically work together for good. Okay, it is God who causes all things together to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. God uses the trials in our life to discipline us. And if we're not being disciplined, we're not his kids. Says Hebrews 12, 5 to 6. The slippery slope will come when we mistakenly think that God tempts us to turn from him and nothing could be further from the truth. He does not tempt us to turn from him. The trials have that effect. They either drive you closer to God or they drive you further from him depending on your response. Every trial brings temptation. God may test us, but according to verse 13, God does not, He cannot, and He will not tempt us. We are the responsible parties in temptations, okay? And in verse 14, James just holds up this mirror and he says, but each person is tempted when he's drawn away when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. God is perfectly sinless, but we are utterly sinful. We can be easily deceived, like Adam and Eve were in Genesis 3. James says that temptation can appeal to our internal desires and attracts us, but hides the fact that it will absolutely kill us. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Note that word, then. Sin doesn't just happen out of the blue. Okay? When our desires and our deceptions connect, it is dangerous stuff. Sin, when it is full-blown, it brings forth death. The course of temptation is progressive. I love Adrian Rogers. He used to say, sin goes from root to shoot to fruit. <laughs> goes from root to shoot to fruit. So what do we do during trials and temptations? When we're so prone to be dragged away and enticed by the desires that are at the core of our lives, we must remember that God is faithful for our salvation. With God, He is the Father of lights. He's the source of everything good with whom there's no variation or shadow cast by turning. Verse 17. God's goodness is unchanging. His goodness is undeserved and His goodness is unending. Verse 18. Of His own will He brought us forth by the, by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. God chose to give us birth through the word or the message of truth. We were uh, in Cincinnati uh, last weekend, and we visited the church, and uh, they started out the service. Uh, the theme was, you know, how do you, how, do you, how do you find God? And they started playing pictures of beautiful mountains and streams and rivers and oceans, and I wasn't quite sure <laughs> where they were going to get at. Uh, uh, when, they, when, they, when the question comes up, you know, how do you find God? And they finally circled back to the scriptures. Okay? James says, we find the truth in the word of truth. That's how we 
began, we became born again. The foundation of this letter is all about grace. God has given us birth. He chose to take his word and write it in our hearts, hearts that are sinful to the core. This is the good news. This is the gospel, that God is the source of every good thing in us. Were it not for him, everything in us would be bad. We need his undeserved goodness to change us from the inside out. And that, folks, is going to take a working faith, not a dead faith. James would go on to say, we believe that God's goodness is just a preview of the day to come when he will make all things new in all creation. That's one of the things we teach the missions team uh, of youth groups that come through here. Now, Christ is not just, what's the, what, why did come, Christ come? He didn't, he didn't just come to die for our sins. He came to make all things new. Okay, that means creating a new heaven, a new earth that will be established. There will be no more trials and no more temptations. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. In the meantime, James gives us some pretty practical commands in verses 19 to 25 to be consistent with our Christian talk and walk. I'll read that now. Verse 19, he says, Let every person... Let every person be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Mm. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In today's culture, I think we've stopped listening to each other, frankly. We, uh, we like to scream or talk past each other without really listening to what the other person is trying to say. So we wonder why there's so many broken relationships at home, in our workplace. Yes, even in the church. There are broken relationships because we talk past each other. James also says that we're to slow, be slow to anger. It does not say that we're not to become angry. But we're to be slow in doing so. Paul said, in your anger, do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. Then in verse 21, James tells his readers in the Greek transliteration, and by the way, i got to give uh, all the credit for these word studies to great men like David Platt and Daniel Aiken of, Southern, of uh, Southwestern, not Southwestern, Southeastern Seminary and O.S. Hawkins, I mean, they're the smart guys that did all these word studies, okay? I'm just the benefactor. I'm giving it to you. So don't think that I did all this. In the Greek transliteration, James tells his readers to get rid of, to put off, to strip away their shabby clothes of moral filth. James was writing to Christians who already know Christ. That is the key to this book, this letter. He's writing to Christians, not non-Christians, and since they know Christ, they should sow consistency in their talk and walk. Therefore, James was saying to those Christians and to us today, stop sinning. You know better. Get rid of the sin in your lives. Sin wrecks everything it touches. We need to get rid of the sin and inconsistencies in our walk. Because, you know, non-believers, they see right through it. How important is it for us to be consistent in our Christian lives? He answers this question. I'm glad you asked. He answers this question, verses 22 to 25. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. He is like the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. The blessing is in the doing. You know, I, I've heard Elder David say that for decades now in this church, and nobody ever bothers to stop him and say, Elder David, can you translate what you're trying to say? The blessing is in the doing. Well, he took it right out of James. That's what he means. Blessing does not come by simply heaping up a lot of biblical knowledge. I know we like to sit and, you know, uh, just listen to great preaching, listen to great teaching. We'd sit there, just soak in the Word and great preaching for hours and days at a time. However, we must not forget that it is not the hearing, but it is the doing that produces the blessing. James says he will be blessed in what he does. What are we doing about what we are hearing? How are we applying what we learn week in and week out. The word do does not simply mean to be busy, not to overload our schedules with busy activities, but to do it creatively. The word hearing in, verses, in verse 22 literally means to audit. Audit. It reminds me of the time in my undergrad years at Oral Roberts University when I audited a marketing course well, it was an 8 o'clock class, okay? Me and 8 o'clock classes don't mix. Uh, I'd show up class late, almost every class. I didn't have to do any projects, didn't have to take any quizzes or tests with the rest of the class. Well, truth be told, I, took, I audited the class because I liked a girl in the class. And she'd, she'd, save a, she'd, she'd save a seat for me every class, even though I was late. But I better get out of here before I get in trouble, Pastor Mark. Okay? So, audit. You guys at MBI, you know what I'm talking about. If you audit a class, right? You don't get anything. You don't get anything except the, uh, the benefit of just showing up physically. You might not even be there, uh, you know, uh, mentally. At the end of that semester, the 39 other students and the girl that I liked, they all got the grade. I got zero, okay? That's what the word audit means, okay? And these people tragically deceive themselves. The word deceived here in the Greek means to cheat yourself. It's an accounting term that means to miscalculate a figure in a bank ledger. And I know our elder treasurer, Rick Vandersvlees, is not here but he almost always, in every elder meeting, he'll point out for us. Pastor Mark's laughing. He knows what I'm talking about. Elder Rick is a master at pointing out the miscalculations that we have in our bank ledgers. It's a good thing that I don't keep the bank ledgers. Okay? James says, if we hear the word and never do it, we're simply deceiving ourselves. James compared such persons who merely listens to someone who takes a casual, haphazard glance at himself in the mirror. He looks but goes away and forgets what he's seen. Verse 24, it's like me before this message. I went into the mirror in the restroom just to make sure my tie's on right. That's what James is talking about, that casual glance. 
How many times do we, as professed Bible-believing Christians, we come to the Bible, we skim over a passage like this, quickly, we may hear what we ought to do, I'll bow my head for a quick prayer, and then run off to work. Well, an hour later into my workday, I've completely forgotten what I read. This is what we call easy believism, okay? It's like auditing that college course. You only come to hear, but you have no fruit. You never do what the Word says. You deceive yourself. And Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. It's important to know God's Word, but it's also very important to obey it, to do it. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and, do, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I love what John Stott says about this verse. John Stott says that the evidence, the proof of our love for Jesus is our obedience. And the reward of our obedience is Jesus' manifestation to us. So we see that when we've never looked long enough into the mirror of God's Word through which He gave us birth, we don't become aware of ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, and we become self-deceived. In contrast, in verse 25, James talks about the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and he perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Second time, the blessing is in the doing. This is completely different than the casual glance we talked about in verses 23 to 24. This is more like what Mary did on the resurrection morning when she stood outside Jesus' tomb. She was crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look intently looking intently into the tomb. The man in verse 25 continues to look intently into the Bible. Continue in the Greek means to stay on course, to stay focused. This is a person who doesn't just glance at the Bible and turn aside and forget what it says. Every day, this person opens the mirror of God's Word, looks intently into it. This man, this woman, alone will be blessed as a result of them staying on course. First uh, class that Pastor Mark and I had at Southern Seminary was Don Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines. I did all the disciplines, and he copied all the notes. I didn't know that was going to be the pattern over the next five years. But that was a great class. And this discipline here of looking intently, looking intently into God's Word is called meditation. Okay? Meditation. Don't get mysterious on me, all right? This is not New Age stuff. This is what J.I. Packer describes uh, meditation as like a little chewing. You do it slowly and thoroughly. You write down notes about what you see in a passage. You make connections between the various sections. You ask yourself, what do these words from God say to me? What do they mean? Place who you are and what you do next to the particular passage and ask God to examine you. Then you write down the findings. That's what this means, looking intently. So we need to build time, folks, into our schedules. It's not natural to not only read and study God's Word, but meditate on it. Chew the cud. 
because we need to allow God's Word to get hold of us, and we will be blessed in doing what it says. So James wraps up the first chapter by showing us that a lifestyle of obedience to God is the hallmark of true religion, the kind of religion that honors and is acceptable to God. In verses 26 to 27, he gives us a picture of the three marks, three marks of true and acceptable religion. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The first mark of true and acceptable religion is controlling our speech. One key characteristic that James points out, again, he refers to Jesus' teachings. He does it here. Jesus clearly taught that what we say is a reflection of what's in our heart right? Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, he called the, the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our speech reflects what's inside of us so that if our speech is not controlled, James says that our religion is a sham. It is worthless. It is vain. It is meaningless. It has to break God's heart. It has to break God's heart when he hears the way that we gossip and we backbite about our friends, our relatives, our family members. Yes even in the church. The way we speak about others is an indicating, indicator of whether or not our faith is real. Let me just say that it doesn't end with our tongues. This is where the social media piece comes in. In this day, when you millennials love to text message, loves Instagramming, loves to Twitter, it's real easy to get caught up in this web, right, in this culture, where we just blurt out whatever comes to our mind, whatever it is that we're thinking, we just blurt it out. I mean, you, know, you don't even have to have another person sitting next to you. You're speaking. You're blurting it out. Well, our culture says that if you have a thought, then you should immediately share it with everybody, right? Wrong. Okay? Don't buy into that line of thinking. Okay? Keep a tight rein, not only on our tongues, but on our social media accounts, please. Okay? Because when it goes viral, folks, it goes viral. Speak in a way that shows that our faith is real and the core of our heart belongs to God. The second mark of true and acceptable religion sacrificial care for those in need. We're to look after widows and orphans in their distress. That word, to seek out, literally means to seek out someone, to visit them. And the implication is that you go to them in order to care for them. 
Look after widows and orphans in their distress. This is the same term that's used in like four other occasions in the New Testament when God visits his people to help them, to strengthen and to encourage them, such as in Zechariah, Luke 1, 68 and 78, Luke 7, 16, and Acts 15, 14. Why widows and orphans, you may ask? Well, that's because they were, and they remain today, the most vulnerable class of people back then and today. All we have to do is read the story of Ruth and Naomi to know that they were desolate, they were destitute. When James wrote this letter to the church, there was no life insurance policies to take care of survivors and Widows, there were no Social Security widows and survivors benefits. No government programs to provide for them. So James tells the church that true religion consists in looking after the neediest people, the neediest people in our community. I'm talking about, yes, including the refugees in the two buildings that we regularly go to over there. I'm talking about the folks over at Grasmere. He's not just saying that if you're a Christian, this is one way you might help somebody else. No, he's saying that if you're a Christian, you are obligated to look after orphans and widows. And if you don't, your religion is not acceptable to God. Looking after widows and orphans is not an option for us. It is an obligation for the church. And because it reflects the heart of our Heavenly Father, who is a father to the fatherless. And he shows it. Through us, his people. Then he ends chapter 1. Aren't you glad I'm at the end? Chapter 1. He tells us to be holy. But he defines holiness as going against the grain of the world. Okay? It's just not just moving all of us down to Jamestown or something. All right? This is, not, this is about living according not to the system of this world that favors the rich and powerful and neglects the poor. James is warning the church that this kind of worldly thinking is not compatible with the kind of religion that is pure and undefiled. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, your sake, our sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We cannot show favoritism when we know this living Christ who gave us everything so that we might be rich in him. He came for us in all of our poverty. The gospel should transform the way we think and live. So chapter 1, James 1, just provides the context and transition for chapter 2, which has this as the main idea. The faith, the faith that saves always produces good works and is based on God's saving work in Christ Jesus. I'm going to cut to the chase for the interest of time and skip to one of the most difficult uh, Bible passages about salvation in all of the New Testament. The premise of James is that faith without works is mere head knowledge. Head knowledge of God and Jesus makes us makes us no, no better than the demons, which is basically dead faith and no faith at all. So he says, 
in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. There's my Old Testament preaching right there. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Uh, Clyde, if you wouldn't mind uh, flashing up that, that uh, slide that has both James... 224 and Romans 328 side by side. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James 224. This is his key verse. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you hold that verse side by side with what Paul said in Romans 328. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You have what appears to be on the surface a difficult, difficult theological contradiction. If it wasn't a contradiction, we wouldn't have any, you know, this gives seminarians something to write about, right? We, ha we have to have controversy for the seminaries. This is it. However, when we look at these passages in context, it's very important, look at them in their context, we see that both James and Paul were simply looking at the same situation from two different perspectives. Let me just, uh, you know, take a step back from the theology and just give you a practical example. If Sister Marla was there, and she's from Brazil, we all know she's from Brazil, you go to Brazil, you mention the word football. Okay, football in our country here, it's, it's this odd-shaped leather ball that 22 guys run up and down the field chasing after, and, and Tom Brady throws the ball up and down the field and scores touchdowns. That's what we think of football. You go to Brazil, you talk to Marla's family, her brothers, about football. Hey, you want to play a pick-up pick game of football? They're thinking of the round ball, the round checkered ball, black and white, okay, that you kick through the net. And names like uh, Messi and Nomar, okay, not Brady and, and Rogers, all right? This is faith from Paul and from James' standpoint. It's the same word, folks. It's not a different word. It's the same word. They're looking at it from two different vantage points but it summarizes their two respective books. I don't think they contradict each other at all. They're both writing about the same gospel, different vantage points. They're addressing different problems in the churches to whom they're writing. All right? They're fighting different enemies, but together they are defending a unified gospel. Paul was fighting against the Judaizers who believed that you can earn your salvation by heaping up good works. James, on the other hand, is fighting against easy believism that reduced salvation to mere head knowledge. Okay? Ironically, both of these battles are still being fought today. Because many of us sitting in here, whether we admit it or not, we think that we can work our way to heaven. 
We can work our way to God if we can just try to be good enough or just show up for so many services. At the same time, others of us believe the idea that we're saved by grace through faith. Works, not relevant at all. We don't have to do anything. Obedience is not important. That's what they were fighting back then. We're still fighting today. This passage gives us a picture of the glorious gospel that is received by faith, and this faith is not mere head knowledge. This is a faith that results in radical obedience to the commands of Christ, and we need to think more about what that kind of obedience looks like. I want to go back to verse 20 where James says that a man who has a faith without fruit is foolish. The Greek word means empty, deficient. He points out that if a man only says that he has faith, he is empty. Such faith is useless, which means it doesn't work. It's idle. It's like a car running on, on idle. Such faith is dead. And then James uses uh, two Old Testament illustrations to prove that real faith is accompanied by fruit. We're only going to cover Abraham. We're not going to cover Rahab. In verse 21, James asks this question. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? On the surface, this seems to run opposite to what Paul says in Romans 4, 1 to 3. Romans 4, 1 to 3, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. These two statements actually complement each other because both men are coming from different perspectives. Paul's emphasis was on faith alone. He was arguing for the primacy of faith. James, on the other hand, was writing to people who went to the other extreme. They claimed to have faith but only had the head knowledge of demons. James' emphasis was on what Jesus would call the fruit of our faith. He was arguing for the proof of faith. Paul emphasized that no one enters God's kingdom except by faith. James would agree. He said so in chapter 118. I read it. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In chapter 2, James just reinforces the point that good works are the natural response of those who are truly God's family. So in context, James was not saying that works are a requirement for salvation, but that they are the result of salvation. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7:20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Paul used the same word works to mean a legalism, just observing the Jewish law. James used the same word to mean the fruit, the proof of our salvation. And in verses, two, uh, in, uh, in verses 22 to 23 of chapter 2, he says, You see that faith was active along with Abraham's works, and Abraham's faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see? 
Legalism is not at all James is talking about when he talks about works. He refers to works 15 different times. And every time he's, he, he mentions the word works, he's talking about the works that are the fruit of faith, which brings great glory to God. When James talks about works, he's talking about God glorifying obedience. That means love for the needy, mercy for the poor, care for the impoverished. All because we're driven by, we're compelled by the love of Christ. Sometimes Paul talks about works in the same way. In Romans 1.5, he speaks about the obedience of faith. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and 2 Thessalonians 1.11, he talks about the work of faith. And in Galatians 5.6, Paul says, what matters is faith working through love. So they're talking about the same thing. You know, theologians make a mountain out of a molehill. So, God gave Abraham his promise. Abraham believed God. By the way, there's a progression in Abraham's life, which both Paul and James refers to. God enters into covenant with Abraham. Okay? God gave Abraham his promise. Abraham believed God. Abraham's faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. By the way, he didn't believe, he didn't believe, his faith in God did not b begin with the moment when he offered up Isaac. It began 25 to 30 years earlier when he got the first promise. Okay? But the event in Genesis 22 where God tells Abraham to offer up his son as a burnt offering and the Muslims are in this season, they're, they're celebrating the feast of Eid al-Adah, Eid al which I will be going to with some of my M friends later this afternoon. It is a major festival. Uh, it, it, they, they, they really look at the, they'll be reading this, this text right here, you know, in terms of Abraham offering up his son as a burnt offering. Abraham goes to Mount Moriah with Isaac raises his knife to sacrifice his only son. And then we read the following words, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. I want to reiterate that Adam... Uh, I mean, Abraham believed God a long time before his episode of obedience. Up to 30 years had passed between Genesis 15 and, and Genesis 22. But Abraham's faith resulted in works of obedience when God called him to sacrifice his son. And James is saying in chapter 2 that this is the fruit of Abraham's faith. So by its nature, faith creates works, and then in turn works completes faith. James says of Abraham, verse 22, that by, by his works, his faith was perfected. That word perfected means to bring to full maturity. Abraham's works matured his faith, brought his faith to its finished goal. Similarly, when we obey God, when we work, our faith grows, it matures, it gets brought to completion. Okay, so... Practically, we might say that the more you obey God, the more your faith grows. Faith leads you to obedience. Obedience leads to mature faith. If you believe that your supreme delight 
is found in God, you want to know Him, you want to hear from Him, and express your heart's longings to Him, then a quiet time is a really good deal. But if you're caring for the poor simply because you feel like you have to do it in order to earn favor before God, then don't. Because caring for the poor will not bring honor to God if we're thinking like that, just to earn favor with Him. But if you believe God, when he says this is important to him and his people are to spend themselves on behalf of the poor, then you will care radically for the poor. And your faith will be made complete in what you do. And verse 24 is probably the most controversial verse in the passage. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith. Throughout this passage, he's talking to uh, imaginary people who claim to have faith but don't really have it. Such faith we know is dead. It's not really faith at all. So when we get to verse 24, James is communicating the same thing. He's saying again, this kind of faith does not justify. It does not save. Why? Because this so-called faith is not really faith at all. It is the faith of demons. And to that, Paul himself would say, Amen. When James says that faith alone will not justify a person, he's referring to the dead, demonic, head-knowledge faith that he's speaking against throughout the passage. So first, salvation is through faith and faith alone. Placing our faith in Christ, we're made right before God the Father. Secondly, faith works. It has to work. When Christ gives you spiritual birth, he gives you spiritual life, a life that's radically different and a life that bears fruit. And this picture of Abraham being God, called God's friend in, in 2.23 is the same as what we hear from Jesus when he calls his disciples in John 15.14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It is the natural overflow of knowing God as our Heavenly Father to enjoy him as a friend. Such faith results in radical obedience. When your faith is in God and Father and as a friend, you don't need to be afraid to obey Him. You don't need to fear His commands. There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out all fear. Because we can trust God wholeheartedly. Even when He tells us to do things that don't make any sense to us or to the world around us. Even when He calls us to take steps that risks everything. That is why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because he trusted God. And when we trust God, we will follow God sacrificially. We'll sacrifice everything in obedience to his commands. Biblical Christianity is not a faith with works. It is a faith that works. I'll end with this story. George Sweeting. George Sweeting, uh, some of you from MBI, uh, you don't remember George Sweeting, his former chancellor. He used to tell this story often. He tells the story of Blondin, the great tightrope walker. Well, on a day, he was performing this tightrope walk across none other than Niagara Falls. Okay? Blondin asked his audience, how many of you believe I can walk across the cable pushing a wheelbarrow? Said, yeah! They all cheered, raised their voices. How many believe I can push this wheelbarrow across the cable with a man in the wheelbarrow? Yeah, they cheered louder and raised their hands. Some even started jumping. Well, Blondin then turned around to the audience and said, 
pointed to one enthusiastic man, and he said, you're my man. Get into the wheelbarrow. <laughs> Needless to say, that man looked for the quick exit. Well, millions, millions of people are quick to claim a faith in Christ, but many are living with the ethical effect of a faith without fruit, said uh, George Sweeting. So Jesus is saying to us, you get into the wheelbarrow. I got this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for a living faith. A faith that was once for all delivered unto all the saints. We pray, Father God, as we uh, leave this place, help us not to leave your presence, but to hear from you every living moment, to really look intently into your word, meditate on it, and then to obey what you tell us to do. Help us to stay sensitive. Help us to stay humble and hear your word and obey. And we thank you for the example that we have in Jesus who gave everything, gave everything for us out of obedience. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.